Good morning, Park Church. The scripture this morning is from Luke 2, 8 through 14. Luke 2, 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Gary, as you just heard. Uh, we're going to take a minute. We're going to pray. God is with us. And that's good news. Uh, that's good news. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about Emmanuel, God coming to be with us in the midst of the pain and the brokenness and the suffering and the division and the disillusionment and the self-centeredness. All the things we've been looking at over the past few weeks are real in our world and they're real within our own hearts. They're real uh, within the kind of reality that we live in. And it's that reality, that painful and broken reality, that is why we kind of name this whole series this idea of the weary world rejoices. Because there's a weariness that's real. And Advent is a time where we consider how God has sent His Son into that weary and broken reality uh, to give hope, joy, love, and peace in the midst of all of it. So let's pray that God would do that among us this morning. Would you join me as we go before the God who is with us? Um, Jesus, you are Emmanuel. You are God with us. And that is good news. And so we pray right now, Holy Spirit, as you awaken to us the, the presence of our God, the presence of our King, the presence of our Comforter, our Redeemer, our Healer, our Savior, would you help us to be attentive not only to your presence, but of your kindness and your grace towards us in the midst of the challenges of this life. And in particular this morning, would you help us to be a people that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain, we'd be a people that can find joy uh, as we consider this good news of great joy that you're bringing for all people. So help us, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a question for you. It's the all-important question about your level of Christmas spirit. Uh, your level of Christmas spirit, as you're thinking about kind of Christmas spirit, if you were to put yourself on a spectrum from Buddy the Elf to the Grinch, you know, like if that was a spectrum, you know, where would you put yourself on that spectrum? I'm talking about just like your excitement about the holiday season. Buddy the Elf over here, right, like Christmas time, pumped, uh, and the Grinch over here. How many of you would put yourself on the Buddy the Elf side of the spectrum, generally speaking? That's a lot. Yes, and these are the people that yell, Woo! You know, uh, they're really excited. It's, it's, you smile, smiling's your favorite. It's like you love that stuff. Uh, how many of you would put yourself on the Grinch side of the spectrum? Not all the way over there. I'm not saying you are the Grinch. I'm not saying you're Scrooge. But you're just like, eh. You know, how many of you would feel that about the Christmas season? All right, there's some hands. I, I probably like fall a little bit on that side of the spectrum just in terms of demeanor about Christmas. How many of you would say mixed bag? I'm a mixed bag, right? That's, you're like, I didn't know that was an option. Uh, Right, so it's an option. Um, the reality is we're all sort of a mixed bag, mostly. 
And, uh, and it's because Christmas brings that out of us. Uh, you know, there's that famous uh, cultural Christmas song, Tis the Season to Be Jolly, right? It's like, this is the season where, like, generic jolliness is, like, what we're expected to have. This, like, general sense, right? Even the song feels sarcastic. It's like, tis the season to be jolly, fa-la-la-la-la, you know, la-la-la-la. Like, it just feels like we're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to paste on a smile. We're supposed to kind of push through the pain, ignore the difficulty, ignore the darkness, ignore the, the difficulties of life, and you're supposed to pretend to be happy. And for some of us, that kind of like faux happiness is enough to make the whole season feel like, ugh, like something feels kind of gross to me about like faux happiness. Something just bothers me about it, just kind of like, hey, decorate everything, slap a smile on everything, put some upbeat music, and, uh, and then everybody will just like magically be happy. But there's something about us that wants that. Something about us that wants joy. Something about us that wants to feel like a break from the gloom and the anguish of life. And that's really what Advent is all about. And that's what we're going to look at today. Is that Christmas, or the season of Advent, is about how God has intended to bring joy to a suffering world. And both of those things are real. That God is bringing joy into a world that is marked by pain, hardship, and suffering. And the Advent season isn't a time to ignore the pain, the hardship, and the suffering. And pretend to be happy. It's a time to be honest about the pain, honest about the hardship, honest about the suffering that exists in the world globally, in our own community around us, in the city of Denver, in our own church family, and in our own hearts and our own relationships. It's to be honest about it and to believe that Jesus has come to bring joy into that space. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about how Christ has come to bring joy to a suffering world. And and I really want to unpack it in a few different uh, ways. If you will open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to start actually in Isaiah 8, and, uh, and then we'll make our way back to Luke 2. But I want you to see this in this famous uh, prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 8. He's speaking to the people of Israel in a season of their uh, existence as a nation that was marked by pain, marked by darkness. At this point, the sort of Assyrian army had rolled over the northern tribes of Israel and, and they're kind of looking at that. They're kind of anticipating now this new global power, Babylon, Babyl- like the Babylonian army rolling over the southern tribes. In the midst of this pain, they're looking all around them, and all they see is darkness everywhere they look. They're overwhelmed. There's a weight to it. There's a thickness, like a palpable thickness to the darkness that they feel as the people of God right there in Israel. And so this is what Isaiah says at the end of chapter 8. And I think it's just a, a, to pay attention to these words of darkness. They will pass through the land greatly distressed. This is Isaiah 8, 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward. And then they'll look to the earth, but behold, this distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness, into thick darkness. Think about all these words in the midst of this place. You have anguish, distress, gloom, thick darkness. These are just the words that are describing their experience in life. Uh, they're overwhelmed and it's, it's dark. It's dark. And the first thing I want us to pay attention to this morning is the reality that life is hard and the world is hurting. Um, Life is hard and the world is hurting. And that's something that's not just true out there. It's true in here and it's true within our own hearts. There's a darkness and a gloom that marks us in this 
life. And if you were to look at the experience of Israel, their experience in this space of darkness and gloom and pain is because of their rejection and rebellion against the reign of their king. And so they had life in the promised land. It was supposed to be abundant, this kind of flourishing life. They're supposed to be in a land full of milk and honey and have peace with each other and peace with God and peace with their neighbors. They're supposed to be a light to the world. But in their rebellion against the reign of their king, they had brought in idols and values that were corrupting their experience. And there was this experience of separation with God that made a darkness that kind of reigned over the people. And what's about to happen in their story is they're about to be exiled from the promised land. Now, this story of Israel is a recapitulation or a repeating of the story of humanity. The story of humanity is the same story. We're created to have union with God, with each other in this world, to be lights to the world, to represent the character of God to one another, to love him, to walk with him, and to love one another. And in our rebellion against God, there's an exile from his presence that has brought a thickness of gloom. And so the Bible word there is curse. So you think about that famous line from Joy to the World, the Christmas hymn we love. It says that he came to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. That the curse and because this rebellion against God has made its way into everything. It's made its way into the way we relate to one another. It's made its way into our relationship with God and the brokenness and the ways we try to earn ourselves back to God or feel shame that pushes us away. There's division with God, division with each other. There's brokenness in the world that leads to a brokenness in creation like tornadoes sweeping through the Midwest. A brokenness in the kind of physical life where diseases and pandemics and cancer plague the human experience. And the goal in this is not to try to find like one thing that caused this one bit of pain, but to know that because of our rebellion as a human race against God, there's a pain that marks our life. And we feel it all over the place. And you feel it. And Christmas isn't a time to say, put that away. It's the time to be happy, like fakely happy. It's the time to actually be honest about those realities. It's all around us. There are pains in this life. I think about during the pandemic, the losses. I lost three grandparents over the course of one year, and many of you lost loved ones. Siblings, grandparents, aunts, uncles, friends, coworkers. That's heavy, heavy stuff. There's right now, as the winter kind of, kind of like sets in, I say winter, right? It snowed like 12 inches in Hawaii like a week ago and 70 degrees in Denver. But as, as it begins to get cold, there are people in this community and all around us here that are living and sleeping outside in the midst of a kind of like increasingly cold time where it's hard to even find places to be warm, places to stay safe, places to find shelter. That's real, not just in our city, but in cities all over this world. There's a, a poverty and a brokenness, and there are things that have caused those realities that are so devastating. Uh, there's difficulty in this world as we think about just political divisions and strife, as you think about going to the holidays to be with your family. There's divisions about vaccines and whether or not we should be vaccined or not. And you, your parents and you have a different opinion or your sibling and you're trying to sort through that. And that's relational tension. And this kind of like clouds over the holiday season. There's divisions all over us, even in our own family in the church. There's pain and challenges and difficulty. That's just real. Just real life is hard. There's a brokenness that exists, and it's a part of the reality in which we live. And then there's just ordinary life pain. There's ordinary life. I always think about Murphy's Law. When I'm thinking about construction projects, I was talking with Sarah Jane about this and Ross. Construction projects have like Murphy's Law, which is like things that can go wrong just go wrong. A week ago, I was kind of uh, trying to change a light fixture in, in our kitchen. You know, you, you kind of buy a house. We bought this house seven years ago, and you're like little by little fixing things. Light fixtures are one of the things you should fix right away. It makes a big difference. 
Seven years later, changing our kitchen light fixture, and I'm like, this should be easy. You know, just take that one out. And I'm like fairly handy. I grew up with a kind of in a family that did construction, and, and I'm doing it. And like the, the plastic coating on the wires in the attic are all brittle and breaking off. And that's actually not good, uh, if you didn't know that, all these exposed wires. And so then I'm like getting up in the attic and crawling through the attic and kind of getting all this old school insulation, fiberglass stuff in my skin. It took like several hours and I'm like running out to a meeting with a friend, but I didn't have time to shower, which is not good. Like going to a meeting covered in insulation, uh, not good. And so I'm like itching and like this thing that should have been easy to make these kind of like little improvements became hard. And that to me feels just like a microcosm of life. It feels like, why can't things just get better? Why can't, if I did this and did this, and if we have this conversation, this relationship should be better. If we could kind of like fix this or vote this way, then this would be better. If we could just get everybody to kind of believe the way I believe about this, then this would be better. It's like this sense, things should just get better, and it turns out they don't. They don't. Life is hard. There's a pain. There's a brokenness in life that kind of affects all the things we do. Work is harder than we feel like it ought to be. Relationships are harder than we feel like it ought to be. Church is harder than we feel like it ought to be, right? Your family is harder than it feels like it ought to be. The curse is found in all of these places. Physical wellness, emotional wellness is harder than we feel like it ought to be. Why do I keep struggling with anxiety about those issues? Why am I struggling with resentment and anger here? Why why can't things just be the way they're supposed to be? It's hard. It's hard. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. This is in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we've worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Merry Christmas. You know, it's like exciting. This is, this is why you came here today. Uh, Christianity is not a religion where we ignore brokenness. It's a, it's a place where we say, look at the brokenness. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel my hand getting hotter over these candles periodically? I, I do. I was like, oh, that was toasty. You know, some singed hairs on my forearm there. Um, do you feel the world is broken? We, we do. Do you feel the darkness thickening? Yeah. It's real. Life is hard. The world is broken. And the question we have to ask is, what do we do with it? How do you operate with it? How do you process it? How do you think about it? Every major world religion, every major world view uh, has ways to deal with the suffering of this world. It's sort of like one of the key components of all the major religions of the world is what do you do with the brokenness? Essentially, what religion is doing is trying to make meaning of reality. You're trying to make sense of things. And uh, and so all the major religions are trying to make sense of, of brokenness. So you have sort of the kind of more kind of Hindu way of thinking about karma and this sort of moralistic approach that like, the things you do that are good will come back to you, and the things that you do that are bad will come back to you. And so if there's bad things happening, it's probably because you deserved it. Whether you deserve it now or the former you in a former life deserved it, 
Something about your experience has deserved this. And if you're experiencing goodness now or if you're doing good things now, it'll eventually make its way back to you either in this life or in the next life. And that's just sort of a moralistic way. So you can think about that through religious terminology, reincarnation, some of that. But you can also just see that seeping its way into sort of a pop understanding of moralistic understandings of how to deal with pain. Like if I'm going through hard things, it's like, what did I do, God, to deserve this? As if if there's something difficult, I did a thing to deserve this. Or I did all these things for you and it should get better because I did the right thing and I fought to do the right thing and it didn't get better. Or I prayed or I went to church or I did the right... And this kind of sense that like, if I do good, it should come back to me. And if, if somebody's experiencing, experiencing something hard, it's because something they did. And if I'm experiencing something hard and I didn't do anything wrong, like that's not fair. Why, God? And we're letting this kind of moralistic understanding of pain and suffering come into this world. And the problem with that is it's just not real. Suffering is so unfair. All the Psalms are people like, I've, I've sought to be faithful to you and it feels like the wicked are prospering and it feels like the righteous are hurting. And why, Lord? It doesn't always feel fair. Another way to do it, more of sort of the, the Buddhist approach to this is the sort of self-transcendent way. If you think about the, the kind of four kind of truths of Buddhism, uh, the, the baseline truth of Buddhism is that the truth of suffering. Suffering is a part of the human experience. The second truth is that the cause of suffering is desire. It's when you want something desperately, desperately, you're now susceptible to pain because it's the desire of things and the disappointment of that desire that leads to pain. That's the third truth, that the cause of the suffering is these unmet desires. And the last truth of Buddhism is the way to kind of free yourself from it is this eightfold path to kind of learn to suppress desire. And that's the kind of path of Buddhism is walking through this eightfold path to learn to not want things as much. And if you learn to not want things as much, you can experience a detachment from desire. Then you're not going to experience the same sort of pain. And you're able to live in this world with a sense of peace. But humans were made to have desire. There are things you're made to long for and to love and to seek out. That's the Buddhist path. And then there's this sort of like fatalistic path like... Um, and this is Stoicism, it's parts of Islam, it bleeds into parts of Christianity, which is more of a fatalistic, like bad things happen, just endure, just endure. And, uh, and kind of a Stoicism that leads to like an emotional, muted, ex emotionally muted existence and just enduring through the pain, surviving in the pain, pushing through the pain. Um, there's also an approach, and Keller talks about this in his book, uh, a dualistic approach, which is like suffering is because of this cosmic battle between good and evil. Uh, and these kind of equal and opposite powers that are trying to find balance. So the kind of like quintessential kind of expression of this is Star Wars, you know, like the light versus the dark, you know, Jedis versus the Sith, you know, Darth Vader, or maybe we say the Emperor versus like, you know, Luke Skywalker or Kylo versus Rey. And you have this experience of this kind of like fight where the world is constantly like if good is kind of getting stronger, then bad is going to rise up. And if bad's getting stronger, good has to rise up in this kind of dualistic approach. And the end result of that kind of like battle, the path forward is for light to finally triumph over darkness so that we can sit with a bunch of teddy bears in tree houses and sing songs around a fire. That's the end of the Star Wars approach, right? You know, they're called Ewoks, if you didn't know. Uh, Ewoks. But that's like this goal of light triumphing over darkness. And, uh, and again, it's just not like that. The biblical worldview is so much more profound. But what I find so interesting is that the least equipped worldview, potentially in the world, is the Western secular worldview. It's the least equipped to make sense of suffering. 
least equipped. The worldview that many of us in this room, most of us in this room, grew up breathing the air and drinking the Kool-Aid is a worldview that says essentially the goal of life is increasing happiness and the path towards happiness is decreasing pain, suffering, and hardship. So that pain, suffering, and hardship are a setback to the main goal of life. Pain, suffering, and hardship are an obstacle to the main goal of life. Pain, suffering, and hardship inhibit us from getting what we are made to get. And so the main goal of the Western secular kind of worldview is to find ways to get rid of, avoid, minimize, numb pain and suffering. And so we feel like pain and suffering is this massive obstacle towards the main thing we were designed for. And that's set so many up in our culture to experience an overwhelming experience of challenge, a despairing experience in the midst of suffering because we don't have a healthy grid to think about it. And so we find ways, any ways we can, to avoid pain and suffering. We hit the eject button when things get hard. We find ways to mute or to minimize the unhealthy feelings we have. We find ways to kind of manage even the most difficult pain and things that lead to the most grief and sadness. We find ways to kind of channel that sadness towards anger because anger is a much more controllable emotion than just grief. To grieve the brokenness of this world and to sit in the pain is hard. If I can find somebody to blame for it and assign this person or this situation or that political party or that family member or that thing, if I can assign someone to blame that I can kind of like push that off and target all my sadness as an anger channeled towards one situation or one person or one political party or one ideology, that reality continues to be some way just to push away the overwhelming feelings that, that plague us. We find ways to drown it out. We distract ourselves. We even use theology. We use good theology, like the sovereignty of God, to kind of find a way to not feel. For so much of my life, I took things like the sovereignty of God, and I thought, if God is sovereign, if Romans 8.28 is true, which is all things work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, if that's true, then this, these painful things in my life can't be painful because God's in control. And I had this a counselor that would walk with me through this. He's like, you know, your, your life is like you have the, theology is good, truth is good. You know, it's also good. Emotions and, and being honest about what you feel, that's also good. But when you have this life where you're like, theology is way out here and you've used theology to kind of suppress your emotions, like you've gotten one leg way out in front of the other. And it led me to be somebody who had a lot of like understanding of theology, but the experience of God's presence in the midst of my pain no, I had used theology to suppress my pain, just to push it away. And we find all these different ways to do it. So a question I want to ask you, and this is real, I want you to actually think about this. Where does life feel hard for you right now? Where do you feel the hard? And what's hard for you is going to be different than somebody sitting next to you, different than other people in the city, different than people around the world. And I think it's appropriate to have perspective about degrees of difficulty. I think that's appropriate. But when we use that perspective to compare our pain to others and use it to suppress or deny our pain or to deny somebody else's pain, it gets really unhealthy. So I just want to ask you to be personal. Where do you feel the hardness of life right now? And what do you tend to do with it? What are you you doing with it? Suppressing it, numbing yourself, channeling it towards anger, finding ways to escape it, hit an eject button, finding ways just to distract yourself to not have to think about it, talking yourself into optimism, like some optimistic, you know, like, you know, 
just be happy it's Christmas. Let's just tuck that away some way. We're all finding a way. And this is the reality of the world. And you're like, why would you spend so much time talking about such depressing things during Advent? Because this is what Advent is about. Right here. It's about what is God's heart towards us in this space right here, right now. And God's heart is to bring joy into the middle of it. Not to pretend that the sad things are happy things, but to bring joy to those in the midst of the darkness. I want to read the rest of this prophecy in Isaiah. And we're going to see the second point, that Jesus has come to bring joy to a suffering world. Look at what happens in Isaiah. The people in the midst of the darkness are experiencing something new. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Think about just the reversal of these emotions. You talk about gloom, anguish, distress, and darkness. They're talking about light, joy, rejoicing, gladness. Like something is bringing to the people that have felt anguish, gloom, darkness, and distress are now experiencing this kind of a new exhilaration of a joy that's causing them to like pump their fists and rejoice and sing a song and praise God and dance. Like how could people that are experiencing this find this kind of joy? How could they? It's right here in the passage. You can fast forward a few verses talking about this, the wars and the striving and the divisions will be reversed. And then it says how that's going to happen, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. There's a new kind of kingdom that this child will bring. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This child that will come will bring a new kind of kingdom. And this kingdom will bring joy to those in the midst of darkness. Now I want you to go ahead and flip over back to where we started this morning, Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, and I want you to think about that lens of the people living in darkness and the light that shines on them and how the anguish and the sadness is turned to joy. And listen to what the angel speaks to the shepherds. And if you need like to kind of think about this passage, you know, or, you know, this is the moment in Charlie Brown Christmas uh, with Linus kind of coming to make sense of everything. You know, Charlie Brown's overwhelmed with consumeristic Christmas, and, uh, and Linus is like, here's what it's all about, Charlie Brown. Chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Uh, these shepherds would have been marginalized, ostracized people, outcasts from their family. They were living in a really challenging existence, sustenance living for many of them, struggling with poverty, kind of wrestling. It was a hard, hard vocation. It was a hard job. And they were significantly marginalized in Israelite society. And those people, to those people, in the midst of this night, while there's Rome oppressing the land of Israel, and there's division and pain within their community, it says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I love that. Good news, great joy for everyone. 
Good news, that's the word gospel, where you get the word gospel. Good news of joy. Not just joy, but mega joy. Great joy. That's for everyone. And here's where that joy is coming from. For unto you, and I want you to have that Isianic kind of prophecy, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And this angel says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For hundreds of years, the people of Israel had thought about this prophecy. When will this child be given to us? When will this son be born to us? When will this child come that will bring this new kind of government, that will bring this wonderful counsel, this mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace? When will the joy break into the darkness? When will this come? And the angel appears to these shepherds and says, right here, right now, a child is born to bring joy to the world. To bring joy to the people feeling anguish and gloom and the thickness of pain. And it's that kind of news that to them, these shepherds changed the trajectory of their life and would change the trajectory of the world. That these people living in the midst of pain, a son was given to them to bring joy into the midst of the suffering and the pain of the world. And that's true for us today. That Advent is a season where we stop and we say, in the midst of the pain of this life, a child has been given to us. And the news of that, whether it's now news that we look back on, this gospel that we look back on, that Jesus came into this world, he met us in the darkness, he brought light to the darkness, he showed love and kindness and grace, he healed and forgave and redeemed and confronted, and he walked in the midst of the pain, he felt the homelessness, he felt poverty, he felt hunger, he felt division, he felt betrayal, he felt abandoned, he felt injustice over him. All of these things, he, he entered into all of the pain all of the pain so that he could sympathize with us and identify with us as we navigate through the darkness of this world. And he went to the cross to bear the fundamental cause of that pain, which is humanity's rebellion against their creator. And he suffered and bore the wrath of God on our behalf so that you and I could be forgiven and washed and cleansed and reconciled to the God who gives joy. And so Jesus could say, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus could say, in this world you will have trouble, but be encouraged, I have overcome the world. Jesus could say, I'm speaking these things that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Like he came into it to say, I want you to know something about the presence of God that gives you joy in the midst of the pain. We often think of joy as the absence of pain, and Jesus says, no. Joy is not the absence of pain, it is the presence of God. And it always has been, even in the midst of the challenges. It has always been the nearness of God, the presence of God, the faithfulness of God that has given people joy in the midst of pandemics, that has given people joy in the midst of church-wide schisms, that has given people joy in the midst of physical suffering and natural disaster and famine and hunger and poverty. The presence of God has given people joy throughout history, and it can give you joy today, right here, right now. Truly, a deep, thick, anchored, palpable joy that makes you want to pump your fist. Even in the midst of the pain. It is available to you now, and it's available through the presence of God. And so here's a question I've been asking. Because I can say that, and we can say that, and we can sing joy to the world, and we can kind of like talk about a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, you know, like, yes. But how do we cultivate that experience of joy? 
How do we practically cultivate an experience of joy in the middle of pain? And so I want to give you just four practical things that are loaded theologically, but just practical things. But how do you cultivate an experience of joy in the midst of the pain of this world? How do you cultivate it? And so four things. Number one is simply this. Embrace the reality of pain and suffering. Become somebody that just like falls in love with reality. The reality that is hard. The reality that is challenging. The reality that is complex. Like the world is hard. Life is hard. Relationships are hard. And they're a pain. There's a guy named M. M. Scott Peck who wrote a book called The The Road Less Traveled. And in this book, he essentially kind of like talks about life as a series of problems that need to be addressed. Like just one after another after another. And at some point in life, when that kind of like sets in on you, that there's never going to be a day when you kind of hit this clearing and all the difficulty of life is behind you. And now you have this like kind of euphoric green pasture life for the rest of your existence until your friends and family members start passing away and your physical health declines and you lose mental capacity and eventually die, right? Like it's... We know, like the whole story of Job is somebody losing in one moment what we all eventually lose in all of our life. Jonathan Edwards talks about the story of Job as what Job experienced is the human thing just kind of brought into one moment. All of these losses, all these losses. Life is hard. It makes you think of that Princess Bride. Every time I think about that phrase, life is pain, Highness. You know, anyone who says differently is selling you something. And, uh, and it's true. And that's not encouraging, but it's real. And something about embracing the reality of suffering helps you when you're going through pain to not go also through the pain of being constantly surprised. And so think about these lines from Job. says, man is born to trouble just like the sparks fly upward. Just like sparks rise from a fire, so humanity experiences trouble. Think about 1 Peter chapter 4 where Peter says, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. What do we do when something hard happens to us? We're surprised. We're like, what? Why, God? Peter says, don't be surprised when life gets hard. Don't be surprised when relationships get hard. Don't be surprised when physical health gets hard. Don't be surprised when work gets hard. Don't be surprised when family or church or society gets hard, as though something strange were happening to you. This is a part of reality. It's a part of the reality of life in a broken world. Do you feel the world is broken? Yes, we do. We do. Or James, you know, when you fall into, stumble into trials of various kinds, or I quoted Jesus earlier talking about in this world, you will have trouble. Or 1 Peter chapter 1 says, we rejoice in this hope that is kept in heaven for us. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's secure. And we rejoice in that hope, though now, as is necessary, we are going through trials of various kinds. It's a part of this life. And I'm not trying to discourage you with that. I'm just trying to get us to be a people that are not shocked every time life gets hard. And if you can pay attention to that reality, it actually sets you up. So now how do I deal with that? Instead of ignoring it or suppressing it or expecting it all to be better always and being perpetually disappointed, what does it look like to lean into it? So this is the second thought. Not just embrace the reality of pain and suffering, but lean into the presence of God in the midst of pain and suffering. To lean into the presence of God. When you are honest about the difficulties, when you're honest about the emotional impact of those difficulties, the sadness you feel, the anxiety, the anger, the depression, the fear, when you start to get really honest about that, like, I actually feel these things. I feel a lot of this right now in my own life. my own journey, I feel anxiety about things. I feel sad about a lot of things. I feel afraid of things. I feel frustrated. I feel that. 
So that's me. If I can like slow down and let myself be attentive to that. You know what begins to happen is God meets you in reality. He doesn't meet you in pretend reality. He meets you in, in reality. He meets you in the sadness to bring comfort. He meets you in the anxiety to bring a sense of hope and trust. He meets you in the fear to say, I'm with you. Be strong. Be courageous. He meets you in the grief. He meets you in reality in ways that are so real that they're actually transformative. They're actually transformative. I think of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, 2 Timothy. It's the last letter he wrote. And he says to Timothy, one of his apprentices, he, he says, all of these people betrayed me. All of these people abandoned me, but may it not be charged against them. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The presence of God in the face of challenges and abandonment and betrayal. He's facing his own death. Same guy in the middle of prison. He'll write to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. You're like, hey, hey, Paul, you don't know what all I'm going through. He's like, I'm in prison. You know, like, uh, like I know a little bit about pain. And I'm still saying rejoice. Not ignore reality, but rejoice. Or even the New Testament, kind of like the, the first followers of Jesus during Acts that are being persecuted. And they went out of this experience rejoicing that they were kind of worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul will say in Philippians 3 that he wants to know Jesus. And one of the ways that he's going to experience a deeper intimacy with Christ is by sharing with him in his suffering. That pain in his life gave him an understanding of the depth of Christ's love for him. This is a part of how we actually experience the presence of God in the midst of it. And when you do that, there's a sense of peace that can break in in the middle of chaos peace of hope that comes in the middle of fear, a nearness and a, and a pleasure that can come in the midst of pain and discomfort. Just like the psalmist said, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever, forever. So lean into the presence of Jesus to take time and journal. Uh, Joel talked about this a few weeks ago, but I have found it incredibly helpful because I struggle to process my emotions. I'm learning to, I'm, I struggle to, to actually sit down and write, what am I sad about? What am I angry about? What am I anxious about? What am I excited about? And just to journal about it. And to let God meet me in that place and say, God, here I am. Like, this is what I'm feeling. And let him meet me there. And again and again and again, he brings peace and hope. And what you'll begin to see, and this is, I think, what's so stunning. You think about the fruit of the Spirit. We quote that all the time. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. What's next? Joy. Love, joy, peace. What does that mean, the fruit of the Spirit? It means the evidence that God is with you. One of the evidences that the Spirit of God is with you is joy. One of the evidences that you're attending to and paying attention to God's presence within you, and you're letting His Spirit work on you, even in the midst of pain. I had a friend that once said to me, the fruit of the Spirit is grown in the womb of adversity. Like, love is easy when everything's going well and everybody's doing what you want them to do. Loving your enemies, that's a different story. Peace is easy when things feel stable in all the ways you want it to be. Peace in the midst of chaos, harder. Joy is easy when there's no pain and no discomfort. Joy in the midst of pain and discomfort, and that's going to take, a, that's going to take the, the power of God within me to produce that. So lean into relationships with God, but also with people who image God to you, to lean in and not away. We try to hit the eject button every time things get hard, and we run away instead of leaning in. We're not the first people in this world to face challenges. And I think about, especially with a young congregation, to lean into life with older people that have walked through challenges and difficulty and to lean in and let the wisdom of their seasoned life, that they've walked with God through pain and suffering, let their wisdom kind of make its way to kind of stabilize you when life feels overwhelming 
and it makes you want to escape. Third thing is find meaning in suffering. Find meaning. There's so much in the Bible about this uh, that one of the things that God does in the midst of suffering is he's producing something within you. He's producing something within you. So James 1 verse 2 tells you that you can count it joy, like in the sort of divine economy of this world. You can actually reckon suffering and pain. You can like say the net effect of that is joy. Why? Because suffering, suffering produces endurance. It produces a resilience in your faith, a faith that's not constantly like derailed and blown off course every time things get a little hard. It doesn't, doesn't have to be. If you like every time stuff's hard, I get like knocked off the tracks and I'm like, what's going on in the world? It's like, man, just keep leaning in and keep living life. And as you keep living life and walking with Jesus through life, you're going to find those same winds that blow don't knock you off course the same way. Bigger winds are going to blow. You're going to get knocked off course again. But you're going to be a lot stronger and more resilient than you used to be. And it produces a depth of faith. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's compared to this crucible. Sufferings are like a crucible, like a fire that this metal goes into. And as the gold goes into the fire, it's burning away all of this dross and all of these impurities. And it's refining something that actually leads to a sense of glory and honor. When Christ comes again and he looks at his people, there's a purifying effect that the people have experienced through the pains of life. It has pruned away attachments to unhealthy things, affection for, and a sense of joy in all the wrong things has been pruned away through the fires of life, through the furnace of life, to find meaning in suffering, that God is deepening things within us in the midst of challenges that actually produce a degree of faith that is powerful. Some of the most joyful people I've ever met in my life are people with chronic pain, hardship, unbearable losses that have learned to meet with God in those spaces and have found him sufficient again and again and again. Find meaning in your suffering. And the last one is this. Remember that suffering is not the end of the story. Pain is not the end of the story. It's not. The cross is real and it comes before the resurrection. But the resurrection is where the life is headed. The suffering of this life, the brokenness of this world is real. The tears that we weep right now are warranted and real. We should weep. We should cry tears. And there's a day when those tears will be wiped away. They won't be said, you shouldn't have cried. You shouldn't have felt sad. You shouldn't have felt pain. It's like, man, come here and let me wipe away those tears. Because the future of the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes again is a place where death is no more, crying is no more, mourning is no more, sin and all the things that sin brings into this life, no more. We are with God. We are his people. Heaven and earth have like come together like a marriage, this intimacy between the presence of God and the dwelling place of humanity that is experienced where we get to walk with him. We get to know love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, faithfulness, all the evidence of God's presence is just going to erupt from humanity. That's where the story is headed. So if you've ever read a good book, when I say a good book, I feel like these days people like, like books that have sad endings. I can't, I can't deal with that. You know, I can't deal with like all the new movies. You're like, that was really, the cinematography was awesome. Like that was like the most depressing thing I've ever seen. Like I, I, but finding a resolution in a two-hour story is harder than finding resolution in a 70-year life. Like waiting for the resurrection is hard. But the end of the story is coming. But the chapter you're in right now might be a decade-long chapter of pain. But it's not the end of the story. 
It's not the end of the story. That's why we cry, come Lord Jesus. You know, we just sang, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, when the clouds be rolled back like the scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That we long for this day and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We live in the midst of a world that is full of pain and hardship and suffering. And Jesus came into the world to bring joy to the world. The Spirit of God is now invading people's lives through the work of Jesus as we're cleansed by his blood and washed and made clean that the holy presence of God could be with us. We sang that again too. We talked about you are here, you are holy, we are standing in your glory. How so? Because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all sin. So the holy, holy presence of God could be among us and we can experience even now a taste of this joy. But Lord, make it come quicker when that faith becomes sight. When all things are redeemed, all things are made whole. And when we hope in that future, and we pay attention to God's presence right here, right now. We understand what God is doing in the midst of the pain and suffering. And we're not surprised by it. You can actually cultivate a life of joy in the midst of a suffering world, in the midst of the hardship of this world. And Jesus came for that purpose. He came to give you good news of great joy for everyone. And let's pray that he would cultivate that within us, even in the midst of the challenges of life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we right now ask for you to pour out your spirit on us in fresh ways, that we would be attentive to your presence right here, right now. That you are with us. You're not far away. You said, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we claim that promise right now, and I pray that, Spirit, you would waken us up to that reality right now. That you are with us right here and right now. As people in this room experience pain, in so many different ways, people struggling with chronic illness and disease, people feeling relational tension and divisions, people feeling overwhelmed by the brokenness in our world, people struggling with addiction and mental illness, people feeling challenges with family and with work. God, would you flood into this reality? And would you give us the evidence that you are with us, that we'd be a people marked by love and joy and peace. So we pray, Holy Spirit, you do that even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.